last podcast, the SEC has issued a framework for the analysis of digital assets under the federal securities laws. And at the time it issued the framework, it also issued its first no action letter on a token called uh, Turnkey Jet. This was a token that allowed you to access private jet travel <laughs> through, a, I, I, you, you laugh because of course that's what every crypto consumer is, is looking to, to do with their um, with their investments. Great democratizing moment for finance, yes. <laughs> exactly. But what the, that, the turnkey uh, no action letter did was uh, establish the SEC's perspective on what kind of token To episode 279 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, but I'm not Stuart Baker, so that means that blockchain has taken over the podcast once again. We'll be talking about blockchain specifically this week. Now, just a disclaimer: the views expressed here do not reflect those of the firm or its clients. So joining me today, Gary Goldschall, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, Will Turner, partner in our Chicago office, Evan Abrams, uh, an associate in our Washington, D.C. office, and I'm Alan Cohen. I'm a partner in the Washington office and host of today's program. So let's start with uh, some big, big-ish news that came out of the Securities and Exchange Commission in this space. As, um, as those who have been following along at home on these issues know, the Securities and Exchange Commission has been a little bit say, sparse in the guidance that it's issued in this space. Um, but they did, uh, since our last episode, issue their second token-related no-action letter to a company called Pocketful of Quarters, uh, giving more guidance but also opening a number of issues. So maybe, Gary, can you give us a short background of kind of how we got to where we are and to how we got to where the SEC is in issuing the second no-action letter? Sure. I think as we covered on our last podcast, the SEC has issued a framework for the analysis of digital assets under the federal securities laws, and in particular, the, the Howey test from the Supreme Court case. And at the time it issued the framework, it also issued its first no-action letter on a um, for a token called uh, Turnkey Jet. This was a token that allowed you to access private jet Travel through, uh, I, I, you, you laugh because, of course, that's what every crypto consumer is, is looking to, to do with their, um, with their investments. Great democratizing moment for finance, yes. <laughs> exactly. But what the, that, the turnkey uh, no action letter did was uh, establish the SEC's perspective on what kind of token it would deem to not be a security. And in that, it, critically, the token was only to be used by the consumer of the air, the, uh, the jet travel. It was at a fixed price. There was no ability to transfer it. It would not increase or decrease in value. It really was part of a closed network of utility uh, and Based on that, the commission was able to come or the commission staff was able to come to the view that it's not a security. And so this is kind of like one side of the way to read the guidance in the sense of um, you have fixed value tokens operating in a closed system versus then uh, floating value tokens in kind of an open system. And in a sense, you can read the framework to apply different criteria depending on which side of that you're on. Right. I think we, we covered this a bit last time as well. The, the This idea that you have this, um, whether something can uh, have an expectation of profit. Uh, and then you have the other set of considerations under the Howey is whether or not it's uh, from the efforts of others, right? And so that gets a lot into the uh, analysis of whether or not something is decentralized or not. So when you have something that's centralized, like you have in turnkey, or you also have in pocketful of quarters, the issue really then comes down to whether or not there's an expectation of profit versus something like Ether, where, of course, it looks more at the decentralized nature of the operations. Right. So the, the token at issue in pocketful of quarters is not like Bitcoin or Ether. It is another one of these fixed value closed system tokens. Yeah. Yeah. In effect, it's a digital representation of the quarters that maybe you or I used when we were younger. We would go to a video arcade and we would go play, whether it's Galaga or Space Invaders or- Really dating ourselves. Uh, <laughs> or what have you. And what, what this uh, company does is it allows these these 
quarters, these tokens, to be used across a range of of, of different video games. The, the the premise is you get tired of a game after some time and you want to take whatever sort of value or or whatever investment you've made in terms of, of of tokens or utility and be able to transfer to something else and sort of create an ecosystem where you can you can go from game to game and you can incent game developers to try to offer new products on this platform with a ready set of, of consumers. Right. Maybe we should uh, I should at least date myself uh, further and, and say that I would analogize the quarter's token not to the fiat quarter, which I think was the initial technology for or means of exchange for video games, but to the arcade token right, um, right. that replaced replaced quarters at uh, at some point. And and the important difference there, of course, is you can take your fiat quarters and uh, spend it on. Uh, I think you could buy a a Coke at that point for uh, uh, for a quarter. For the quarters tokens, as I understand it, gamers cannot do that. They must spend the token in the arcade or an arcade because there is conceptually uh, the ability to use this token in multiple video games. Well, you're exactly right. That would have been a better a better analogy, you know, it's not the quarters, it's the it's the Nathan's token that you would use um, as opposed to the actual currency. So what do we take away from this, Gary? I mean, what what's the what's the impart of this? Sure. So, you know, I've gone back and forth as to whether or not this is a significant no action letter. And over time, I've really started to question whether this really adds much to the SEC's guidance or, or jurisprudence. You know, on the one hand, we have a, another token involving a stable value coin at a fixed price in unlimited quantities for use on a fully developed platform, and we'll get to that, I think, shortly, without any opportunity for a consumer to redeem or transfer the token. I mean, if if that is a security, we're in a very, very strange place. True enough. True enough. But there are some interesting nuggets um, that shed some light on either what the SEC is thinking or the types of things they're willing to allow uh, be part of these types of systems, if only on the fixed value uh, closed loop side. And I, and I think some of those are, are kind of interesting. I mean, first, Will, you've thought a lot about what's the SEC saying here about what what is a fully developed platform, which has been an issue of, uh, of, of some interest in, in prior uh, token cases. Yeah, I, I agree that this continues to be a, a bit of a, a struggle, uh, primarily because the concept of full development doesn't fit very neatly into uh, the ethos of software development uh, that contemplates uh, continuous improvement and agile development. And uh, it's my sense that the staff maybe intentionally uh, picked a word that didn't sync up uh, particularly neatly to the software uh, world because it uh, gave them uh, some ability to evaluate alternatives on a facts and circumstances basis or uh, allowed us as counsel to do so uh, since uh, typically they would advise that uh, we as counsel were in the best position to make the evaluation. I mean, the the, the facts in uh, the pocket full of quarters uh, letter are interesting because while the the game was, uh, excuse me, the network is uh, connoted as fully developed, uh, it wasn't a test net as as I understand it. Um, and I, I take the point that uh, there's a little bit of a cart and horse issue. You can't launch until you know you're not going to violate the law. Um, but it, it was um, still only in a test phase. In addition, uh, while there were uh, a dozen or so uh, games in which the uh, token could be used upon upon network launch, uh, it seems aspirationally as if the network uh, desires to uh, apply to additional games where it's not yet usable. And I say that because the token has uh, two described uses uh, in the network. One uh, is within video games, uh, as we've already described, and the second is in tournaments. 
uh, video game tournaments, and um, the games for which the esports tournaments are going to be held are different and perhaps uh, newer and more popular than the games for which the token can be used uh, for consumption uh, within the within the game itself. So, so in your example, in, in your arcade, uh, you can only use the arcade tokens for those games in the that back right corner that nobody wants to play. But every weekend, they'll have a tournament with the, the fun games in the front, um, and you can use your quarters to, to enter those tournaments, but not play the games. Well, I think it's interesting, I mean, maybe giving some context to it, right, you have for the, for the quarters themselves in, in, the, in the, the, the games, you have Meteor Munch and, and Galaga, and then for the tournaments that Will is speaking of, you have, you know, Fortnite and Minecraft. So sitting here in 2019, there's a lot more demand, a lot more excitement around... Fortnite and Minecraft than there is the, perhaps the sentimental favorite of okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one interesting thing. Uh, another thing is it does seem like the SEC is continuing down this road of really locking the user in to the single use of the token, which is once you've purchased the token, you really have no option other than consume it, spend it, or it, you have no other use for it. But Pocketful of Quarters introduces the concept that there's others in the ecosystem who can cash out of those tokens. Yeah, before we get to that, maybe I'd want to just emphasize one thing to build on what you said uh, in terms of the way the SEC likes to lock in the use of the token. And that is they also want to see both technological and contractual constraints on the ability of a user, of a purchaser of tokens to transfer them to someone else. The SEC does not want these tokens to be trading on a market, doesn't want to see them being exchanged outside of their predetermined and dedicated use. That being said, I think maybe Will will, will, will jump in here, but there there is an opportunity for someone who receives these tokens to be able to, to, to extract value from them. Right. And in essence, once the token's been consumed for that consumptive purpose, the recipient of the token is not under a similar burden necessarily. Right. So, Will, thoughts on that? Uh, sure. So there are uh, two described classes of uh, recipients. Uh, one is um, video game operators who are described as developers in the letter. And, and the second is... Uh, uh, is an influencer class of uh, individuals who are uh, video game uh, personalities um, uh, who are contemplated uh, to host tournaments and otherwise, wait for it, promote yeah. the um, the network uh, or, or at least the use of the token, if not the network, in uh, esports tournaments. Both the influencers and the developers, after going through a, a, a KYC process and agreeing to uh, contractual and technological uh, uh, restrictions, are able to exchange their quarters tokens uh, for ETH utilizing uh, a smart contract, which interestingly is sometimes seems to be personified uh, in, in the letter as if it's an entity uh, separate from uh, the quarters company uh, it, itself. Yeah, that was another interesting piece of the of the letter, which was this idea that the smart contract is is an entity unto itself. Um, and and as a result, one can transact, put, put ether in, get quarters out, then put quarters in, get ether out without really involving the company, which is a little bit of a different take than the SEC had in its ether delta decision, I, right? Where I, I, they they said, look, uh, even though you have a smart contract that can operate autonomously, we're still going to hold the, the 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 person who coded that responsible. I understand what you're saying. I, I think I look at it somewhat differently. I, I think the fact that the smart contract governs the the exchange of quarters tokens to ETH is wholly consistent with the SEC's ideas that they do not want this transferring out in some kind of marketplace. So to the extent the only way it, it transfers is by code and only to limited parties seems to help 
constrain the ability of this asset to be traded or transferred in any other way. So and even though it might not be part of the same legal entity uh, that is issuing the tokens, I think it's wholly consistent with the SEC's view at restricting the trading or transfer, except in very limited cases. So that seems to be the case. And it definitely seems consistent with the, with the SEC's ideas about technological constraints on you know, cashing out of tokens. It does seem to be maybe introduce a little bit of tension with uh, FinCEN's thoughts about who's responsible when cryptocurrency gets exchanged for other types of cryptocurrency. I don't know, Evan, if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the POQ uh, decision raises a couple of interesting questions as it relates to FinCEN and, and anti-money laundering. And there's a little footnote in the incoming letter that says something to the effect of, you know, we're not making any statements one way or the other on FinCEN AML issues. So they're unresolved, at least from the kind of public documents that are available. But I think one question is this, what we were just talking about, this smart contract, and how do you look at that? And this relates a little bit to the FinCEN guidance uh, that came out earlier this year, and I think we may touch on that more later on. But there's some ambiguity in that guidance where at times they talk about uh, dApps and dApp developers as being regulated. And what are dApps? Uh, decentralized applications. Okay, uh, there you go. And, uh, and at other times they talk about people who are just software providers or who are offering a decentralized uh exchange is not being regulated. It's not really clear how those all link up and interact with one another, and it's not really clear uh, necessarily where a particular item should fall. It's been implied to me by folks at FinCEN that administrators of smart contracts uh, either are or, or may be uh, subject to anti-money laundering regulations. I think another interesting point on the AML piece that comes out of this is how you look at genesis of tokens or token issuances where you have platforms or ecosystems that might not be regulated. Uh, so in this case, there are potential arguments here under what's known as the integral exception that what they're doing here is they're providing a non-money transmission service. And if there's any money transmission, it's just integral to this other service. Um, there are some other potential arguments I think you could think about about whether is this even a convertible virtual currency, at least with respect to uh, the users. Um, so there's, I think, at least some plausible arguments that the ecosystem itself does not fall under uh, FinCEN's rules here. But generally speaking, the issuance of tokens would be regulated. And so I think one of the open questions is, what happens in a situation where you're creating tokens, but then there are uses in an ecosystem that's not regulated? Can you kind of glom on the exceptions for the ecosystem to that initial issuance? So I think a couple of really interesting and somewhat unresolved questions that are brought up by this POQ case. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I think if you turn them on, on their head, if you go over to the decentralized token, not fixed value... You then start. You then see these these issues in the reverse, in the sense of, you know, how, what is the, the 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 breadth of the integral exception in that type of a of an instance? If you you know, could something like a smart contract actually be, you know, a, an unaffiliated element, and could could the smart contract be the one that that bears the AML burden or not in some way, and not the rest of the platform? And interesting questions that would that would then prevent them present themselves in the in reverse. Yes. Uh, and there's, and as I think we've discussed before, there's often tension, I suppose, between what the SEC is saying and what FinCEN is saying. Uh, and sometimes they interact in kind of neat and helpful ways and sometimes in very unfortunate ways that uh, you might have solved one issue and created another one for yourself. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to be the reality, at least for a while here, as these agencies continue to kind of define the scope of their regulations and their expectations. Yeah, no, no, no. good point. Good point. Um, so we will see who's right in all of this. Um, probably a, a little bit of everything, but uh, we'll see if um, Pocketful of Quarters actually is a, is a meaningful addition to the to the guidance book, or or just another example of a of a um, of a token that was never really a security in the first place. Anyway. Now we can talk a bit about things that, in, that at least have been conceded to have been securities in the first place. We have another SEC complaint that's been filed against a company called ICO Box and two individuals associated with uh, 
uh, with that entity. And this is kind of a double-headed complaint, right? In that this is an entity that both conducted its own initial coin offering and kind of served as a platform to facilitate and enable other initial coin offerings. So, Gary, want to give it, you know, walk us through this? Sure. I guess, you know, might as well go all in, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, what we have here, uh, ICO Box was a, a self-styled ICO incubator, a platform for, for ICO issuers. Uh, ICO Box's management team was purportedly going to curate ICOs on this platform, uh, and issuers would be charged a fee, or issuers that were able to pay would be charged a fee of about $250,000 plus a percentage of funds raised if successful as consideration for the services, suite of services that ICO Box would provide. That, that had been done before. ICO Box wanted to go maybe one step further and create its own token, which would fund the ICO Box platform and operations. Hey, you got to eat your own dog food, right? Exactly right. And this token was going to have this great value because it was going to allow you to exchange the ICO Box token at a four to one or one to four ratio, a 75% discount for any of the ICOs that would come on the platform. So $1,000 of ICO Box token would give you $4,000 of an ICO that comes on that platform. Uh, if, if that, it's, I guess they refer to it as an ICO discount pass, and perhaps it had the same success as the uh, movie pass, right. which, right. you know, was uh, popular until it, until it stopped working, which is exactly what happened uh, here with, with this um, ICO box token because it no longer can be used in, in that way, and, and the, the value of the token is, uh, is just a fraction of what it was when it was originally sold. So what is this, what is this complaint telling us? From each of these perspectives, does it first of all does it shed any new light on the ICO as ICO question? I don't think it does. I mean, I think the facts in this case are somewhat are are are, are quite interesting, and we'll, we we talked about those a little bit before. But this this activity all took place almost immediately after the Dow report, and and the Dow report was the SEC's, I guess, first sort of seen as the sort of the first official statement about how digital assets could be viewed as securities. In that case, it was the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, uh, which was issuing tokens which would allow people to use those to only invest on businesses. And, uh, you know, at the time, there was sort of ambiguity or question as to whether or not this would be a security. SEC, I think, made that abundantly clear in the 21A report that issued back in July of 2017, which is the exact same time frame that all this was going right, on. Right. And and so questions were coming in about whether or not this was going to be a security. And what the ICO box uh, folks were saying was, no, this has utility, and therefore we view it as not a token. Of course, we we know how that story ends and we see it with this with this complaint. Uh, it's also interesting that one of the securities that ICO box sold on his platform is, uh, is, is Paragon Coin, which if that sounds familiar to any of our listeners, it's because Paragon Coin itself was the subject of an SEC enforcement action about a year ago in last November, where it agreed to pay a $250,000 fine and register its securities under, under Section 12. So it's a good example that the SEC is kind of building investigations on top of investigations, kind of following along, not just taking tokens kind of on their own, but but looking at them in, in the context in which they are sitting uh, and the other entities they are interacting with. Safe to say? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, you, you would have imagined at the time of the Paragon coin settlement that the SEC was well aware of the platform ICO box that was used to sell uh, Paragon coin, yet, nothing, yet we heard nothing of it. In fact, I reread the Paragon coin uh, settlement following the ICO box complaint to see if there's any indications of it, and there was nothing. So what I what I, I guess I infer from this in some ways is the SEC probably tried to get a settlement with ICO box. They didn't want to, to settle. And so it's about the 11, 12-month time period that it takes from when you decide not to settle until the SEC can go through that formal process, gather all the necessary uh, evidence, and build the record to file the complaint. Yeah. Yeah, what, what I was going to ask Gary is is whether he thinks <clears throat> what the staff is, has included in the complaint is enough to make out uh, a claim of uh, broker-dealer activity because the, the language in the complaint 
uh, is the token sale conducted by at least one of these clients, and then identifies uh, Paragon Coin. Um, yeah, I have uh, gone along for 20 plus years believing that um, one had to be in the business of uh, conducting uh, transactions and securities on behalf of clients uh, in order to meet the definition of broker-dealer and that perhaps if someone conducted an isolated transaction, it wouldn't meet the, the business uh, exception. I, I think at least a few courts have uh, agreed with that uh, interpretation. Uh, um, unfairly, I ask you, Gary, to speak for the uh, SEC, which has noted token sales of over 30 clients, but has only identified one, as far as I can tell, as a sale of securities. Well, again, that's that's typical of cases like these. And if we, Alan mentioned earlier, the Ether Delta case, which yeah, was this, the, this is one more security token than has been identified in the Ether Delta case. <laughs> right, exactly. He 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 um, makes reference to the fact that Ether Delta was a was a decentralized platform exchange, and also a settlement case in the SEC. Uh, didn't specify, but but alleged, and and the the Perhaps party hand waved. <laughs> agreed to the fact that there were uh, there were there were securities traded on that platform. I think the SEC probably felt it was in stronger position here uh, with with Paragon Coin, and perhaps maybe one of the reasons it was eager uh, or willing to settle with Paragon Coin. Again, just speculating here, but now looking at at things, which is this this admission by or consent by Paragon Coin and and subsequent registration as a security. Uh, certainly creates a stronger foundation for the claim that what they're doing is is uh, unregistered broker-dealer activity. And so, really anybody that handled that Paragon coin in this same way, right. that and so, was a predicate. Yeah. So, you know, the, this is, in my mind, sort of very basic broker-dealer registration activity, right? Because you're soliciting investors for investment in securities and you're receiving transaction-based compensation or, or a fee Based upon the amounts or the success of that activity, that that is sort of quintessential broker dealer activity. I, I take Will's point that the definitions of, of broker also involves engage in the business. I, I think even though they've only identified one token as a security, I think they've uh, they're certainly um, confident they have an, enough activity to make the case that they're engaged in the business. Of, of, of doing uh, this type of solicitation activity. What about the fact that they've chosen to bring this case against a platform that also seemingly has some Section 5 violations? So they've got some Securities Act violations on top of uh, Securities Exchange Act uh, violations. And maybe in other situations, they wouldn't have that. Um, particularly as we uh, see the emergence of uh, various uh, uh, exchanges uh, facilitating uh, initial offerings. Maybe in those cases, uh, if the staff uh, chose to bring uh, an action, it would be a Securities Exchange Act only action. Uh, Gary, you have uh, talked in the past about uh, the staff being uh, very thoughtful and the cases that it, it chooses to bring, both because it, it would like to uh, maximize its chances of success, but it also uh, wants to warn the industry. Do you feel like uh, if they're successful uh, in this case on both the Securities Act side and the Exchange Act side that uh, it's something for IEO platforms to uh, to take note of. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure this case is needed to add to the jurisprudence or the guidance that comes out about these types of activities. the The facts of ICO Box in terms of the way the platform operates is not that dissimilar than the Token Lot case from last year, which operated an ICO a superstore, and so they're they're really. Very, very similar. Again, what what ICO Box did was was also have its own its own offering, which is why I think you see not only the the fifteen A claim, but also you, you can't you can't bring the fifteen A claim and then leave the Section Five or the Thirty Three Act violation on the side. But again, I think what's alleged here shouldn't surprise anyone who's been following this area. 
Yeah. So very interesting. And I think, again, an example of how the SEC is kind of following the roads that, that are presented by uh, its investigations to date and its settlements to date uh, to kind of continue walking down those roads and, and, and see who it encounters uh, as a result. Switching gears over to other parts of the U.S. government, we talked a bit about FinCEN, FinCEN's parent entity at the Department of the Treasury, um, the Undersecretary for um, Terrorism Finance and other related uh, nasty things, um, kind of led the charge uh, on the U.S. presidency of the Financial Action Task Force, correct? And they've they've kind of taken the world along on our on on our regulatory ride on what's called the travel rules. Evan, you want to t- tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so the U.S. Uh, and other jurisdictions throughout the world, uh, although not um, all of them, or certainly not all of them, with respect to digital assets, um, but the the U.S. has something that we call the travel rule, uh, which essentially requires financial institutions to collect and retain certain information and to pass along that information when there are funds transfers between financial institutions. And uh, this was something that was noted in the FinCEN guidance from May of this year that, that FinCEN was taking out a position that this travel rule was going to apply to digital assets. Uh, FATF, uh, which is the international standard-setting body uh, that most countries follow uh, with respect to anti-money laundering, has now uh, rolled out a recommendation that countries apply uh, the travel rule or some variation thereof uh, to digital assets in their jurisdiction. And as you were saying, Alan, uh, this occurred while the U.S. had the presidency of FATF. It's a rotating presidency uh, and seemed to be led by the the United States. Uh, but the way FATF worked, there was at least some amount of, of international support from, from other countries, so they probably would not have been able to push this through. But it's an interesting development for a number of reasons. I think one is just going to be the difficulty and complexity for industry to figure out uh, how they're going to comply with this. There's not a great mechanism for that kind of information sharing right now uh, between cryptocurrency exchanges or other uh, regulated entities that are dealing in digital assets. And so what we're seeing now uh, is of a lot of different uh, actors who are coming forward with interesting technology solutions, uh, interesting governance ideas, uh, kind of a variety of, of different recommendations and suggestions for how this can be done. Uh, and I think a lot of those show promise or seem like they would be workable. It's it's really going to be a matter of what the industry coalesces around. Um, and you know, I think most people are of the view that the industry will have to coalesce around kind of a singular solution or maybe a couple of solutions that can interact with one another. So so watching that process, I think, is going to be key over the next several months to a year as that plays itself out. Yeah, interesting. Um, and it will be interesting to see if it sticks or if jurisdictions start to kind of push back on, you know, the 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 just the feasibility of this. Yeah, th- that's a good point. Uh, you know, as I said, the U.S. has a travel rule that they've applied to digital assets. Uh, some other countries have, but many have not. And so, if you're in one of those jurisdictions. Uh, right now, there may not be a clear rule for you to follow if you're dealing in digital assets. Um, and so we'll have to see if those jurisdictions roll out new rules or extend existing fiat-based rules to digital assets. Uh, and that's likely to be a somewhat halting process, I would suspect, uh, and, and certainly has the potential for jurisdictions to kind of take somewhat different or uh, you know nuanced approaches to the travel rule that may make compliance uh, more difficult and complicated. Um, and, and as you said, uh, there, there may be some jurisdictions that just don't do this in part due to the difficulty of figuring out uh, how to issue regulations about that or how to enforce that. Uh, so, so that's definitely going to be something to watch. One other point that I think will be interesting on this is uh, if you kind of accept the proposition that at some point exchanges and other regulated institutions will have to be collecting and passing uh, information about uh, originators and beneficiaries of funds transfers, uh, it seems like uh, that will also 
push us to move towards a world where exchanges uh, will be collecting kind of a standardized set of KYC when they onboard people. Um, there certainly could be differences and nuances, and some people may collect kind of more than the minimum, or if you're you know, not going to be engaged in uh, funds transfers that would fall into the travel rule, maybe less. Uh, but it seems like the process may also kind of drive the industry towards some standard setting with respect to onboarding, which is an area where, uh, at least right now, there's a lot of difference between what uh, entities out there are doing. Yeah, interesting. So there's some other guidance that came out over the summer, um, some joint guidance from FINRA and the SEC concerning digital asset custody, um, which is helping to maybe fill in some more of the pieces in this area. So Gary, maybe take us through that. So I think this statement is helpful in understanding the concerns that the SEC and FINRA have or what's giving them pause in, in having firms register as broker-dealers uh, in, the, in the digital asset space. It doesn't so much sort of give guidance as it as it identifies what's on their mind. And I think through that, it can help industry participants engage with the staffs of FINRA and the SEC and help them become comfortable with what's what's on their mind. So, you know, what's seen as one of the primary impediments to acting and registering as a broker-dealer in the digital asset space is the customer protection rule, uh, which requires a broker-dealer to safeguard customer assets and keep them separate from the firm's assets uh, activities which are very important in case of insolvency of a broker-dealer, really sort of foundational elements of investor protection. But the customer protection rule requires that the broker-dealer physically hold the customers fully paid for securities and maintain them in a good control location. So in the non-digital asset world, the custodian is typically a bank or uh, the depository trust company or registered clearing agency. So we really get three concerns, I think, that come forward through this uh, uh, joint staff statement. The first, the SEC and Vendor seem concerned that the private key does not establish control. They note several issues. One, that if a broker-dealer has a private key, there's no assurance that someone else also does not have the private key. In other words, the private key does not signify exclusive control. Number two, if you lose the private key, the assets are lost forever. And number three, transfers that are made in error cannot be reversed in the same way that erroneous or unauthorized transactions are today with traditional custodians or financial intermediaries. So what's the, the implication of that kind of an observa those observations about private keys? Because in some ways, um, it raises some questions about what does it mean to have custody of these assets at all. In other ways, it seems perhaps a little different than the way we think about custody or the or the the what we need to establish custody in terms of other types of assets. Yeah, and what I think it, it signals is you need to start engaging with the staffs of the SEC and FINRA in ways to help address the concern that in, both in the creation and the possession of the private key is such that you can address their concerns that either it's going to go missing or that it's not going to be exclusively held by a, a individual person or entity. And I think there are uh, a number of innovations in the custody space that speak to these types of concerns and, and so need to, I think, educate the staffs there about what the industry is capable of, of doing in, in this regard. Again, I think it, I think it points to a, a way forward and, and you would hope and these, again, these are not illegitimate concerns. They need to then be just identified and addressed. Mm -hmm. So the second area of concern is how digital assets might be treated under uh, SIPA, Securities Investor Protection Act. I believe that's what it is. And the worry is that many of the digital assets might not be covered by SIPA, either because they're not securities or because, helpfully enough, SIPA has a different definition of security. Uh, one that does not include investment contracts. Think Howie. So there's always a risk your broker-dealer is going to fail. And in that case, Bitcoin that it's holding or certain security tokens, which might not be SIPA securities, could then uh, you could find those then becoming just general assets of the broker-dealer and then used to pay you know, claims of other creditors, right? You just be lumped in with all of the other general unsecured creditors. So that's an area I think that can be addressed through disclosure. It's very important that, that investors understand that certain assets that a broker-dealer hold might not be covered by SIPA the way others are. And again, that's, a, I think, a process of, 
of disclosure uh, and and education. I mean, and is, and is that an instance where the SEC, in essence, should be able to to rely on those kinds of disclosure revisions in the same way that it might rely on disclosures in other asset areas? It's a very good question, Alan. I think part of this also might be buying some time because SEC might be working with with SIPA or SIPIC, to see if there may be some ways to make changes in what it covers. Again, if you think that your Bitcoin held at a broker-dealer is not going to be given the same protection as cash or fully paid-for securities that you have there, it really does question whether or not you want to have your Bitcoin at a broker-dealer. And are there other things that can be done to, to provide investors or customers with the level of protection they would expect when they have assets held at a broker-dealer. So I think it, it it reflects the imperfect state of the law at this stage vis-a-vis these types of assets. Yeah, it also goes into the, the kind of the more industry side or philosophical side question about whether people should be having others custody their, their cryptocurrency for them in, uh, at all or whether this as an asset class is a, is a place where, I mean, it's designed to be self-custodying. So... Um, are we chasing legally constructed, you know, rabbits down uh, down rabbit holes? Well, the joint staff statement has a, a whole section that deals with non-custodial broker-dealer models for digital uh, asset activities. And so, yes, if you want to remove the issue of, of custody, uh, I think it, it simplifies the, the analysis quite a bit. Uh, the final concern I think that they raise is is how you'll be able to keep accurate books and records and prepare audited financial statements given some of the difficulties discussed above about how you demonstrate exclusive control over the customer's digital assets. Now, what I find really fascinating about this statement is it points to a potential solution, at least in some cases, involving a transfer agent, uh, w- which is where I first became involved in, in DLT when I was at the commission, worked on a concept release in 2015. But it's the fact that they're looking at the transfer agent, which is almost, you know, that's a centralized entity that keeps a ledger. And the idea that the transfer agent is the solution to this new technology of decentralized ledgers. Self-ledgering. It, 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 yeah. it is, it is, yeah. it's, it's quite, it's, it's quite ironic. At the same time, it also does provide some of the key elements of the regulatory scheme that that I think are worth worth looking at. Uh, and, and because if the official records of ownership are reflected on the transfer agent's master security holder file, then some of these issues about whether something is lost or whether who has the key or not, they go away. Then we have to look to see how the blockchain will interact with the master security holder file. And I've spoken with a number of TAs uh, who are actively um, looking at this at this space and looking at providing solutions. And so I, I do think it is interesting that they they point to that. Listen, this is not going to solve certain issues such as those revolving you know Bitcoin or, or or Ether, but for certain types of security tokens, this role of a transfer agent, at least in the near term or midterm, could be a, could be a helpful helpful path forward. Right. Now, that makes sense. Could I ask a, a question um, that, that's a little bit ornery, but I think is um, important uh, that we consider for all the regulatory developments? And that's what are they, what's the, the commercial implication of, uh, of the new custody guidance? It, it seems to me that two fair takeaways are that the industry has it right uh, in uh, noting that uh, – Custody is a key issue, and we are seeing a number of traditional uh, BDs as well as what I'll call new market entrants, but uh, in, in terms of uh, the crypto industry, in some cases have been around for, for a number of years trying to provide these solutions. So it does seem like the industry is responding to a regulatory need in a very competitive and, and effective way. Uh, so that's the good news, it seems to me. The bad news, it seems to be, if you've got a, a BD and you're trying to get approved here um, or you're trying to get an extension of your business approved, and there's not a whole lot of of hope that uh, you're going to satisfy uh, FINRA anytime soon based on this, is there? Well, as often as the case, you, you do uh, bring up some excellent, excellent points. I, I think that's absolutely right. 
and I think I started in saying I feel like this what this this isn't so much guidance, and I didn't hopefully didn't use the word guidance because I tried to strike it from my lexicon in speaking of this. It's a statement because what it really does is it just identifies areas of concern that then people can engage with the commission or FINRA staff and hopefully gets a resolution. But your point is well taken that these are not uh, unknown areas of concern and there have been firms who have been trying to come up with solutions and been, been engaging with the staffs for years now and haven't yet had that sort of breakthrough which is so essential to someone who wants to operate in this space. Again, it's it's always helpful to have a document like this because you really can't do this more than once. The next document has to can't just frame the issues and frame the questions. It'll have to it'll have to come up with with some some guidance, some answers. And so, to the extent this is a a path or a a, a stop along that path, I think it's helpful. But but you're correct. It, it it might be frustrating for those who have been actively engaging for some time and really were hoping to 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 know what the the right way to to comply and proceed is. And FINRA, of course, is is previously uh, issued a, a document that uh, also had a, a number of questions. It was a single agency document, and and obviously quite a bit broader than than this one. Um, is there anything that uh, a applicant could take from the fact that the this is a dual agency document and? is more narrowly focused or is it really just more of the same? No, I think it's always good to see agencies jointly coming to, you know, uh, common views on things, even if it's if it's just areas of concern. So I, I do think it's helpful uh, in that regard. I think you are also correct that there is a significant track record of regulators, whether it's FINRA or the SEC or CFTC, asking questions around this space as a way to both educate them as well as to put market participants on notice as to what's on their mind or what the regulatory issues might be. I think it's I think overall it's it's positive, but certainly not what people would have hoped for. Yeah. So a couple of quick hits. Um, FinCEN did actually a, a pretty decent job back at the end of the spring in issuing some guidance that actually answered a couple of outstanding questions and uh, and clarified some others. Evan, some some quick thoughts on that? Yeah, it did. Uh, it, it's pretty comprehensive. I won't go through the whole thing, uh, but it's organized around different business models. And so you can look through the guidance and uh, line up your business, or at least try to line it up, depending on how uh, kind of novel it is uh, w- with the guidance. And, and if you fall into a particular bucket, uh, you know, the, there's fairly clear guidance for many of those buckets. Um, it uh, clarified, for example, token issuance. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. And uh, before this guidance came out, there were indications from FinCEN that they were going to view that as money transmission, uh, but they hadn't kind of clearly set that out in a formal guidance document. Uh, so it clarified a lot of important issues uh, of that variety. Uh, there were a couple of surprises in there, I think. Uh, Hosted wallets uh, are regulated, uh, and I think that was probably a surprise to many people in the industry. Uh, certainly, if it was combined, you know, with something else like an exchange, um, that uh, I think most people would have viewed as kind of part of the exchange and, and regulated. But this seems to go um, kind of quite a bit beyond that in, in how it talks about. Uh, hosted wallets, unhosted wallets, on the other hand, though not uh, within the purview of, of the regulations, and, and that's an important point. And then uh, some ongoing ambiguity, um, and, and I think the biggest place of ambiguity is what we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, and that's this: how do you look at DApps or decentralized applications versus being a software provider versus decentralized exchanges? Um, and I think that's an area that uh, the guidance was not totally clear on, and, and we're going to probably uh, see a lot of people struggle to to piece that together as they go forward. Uh, it would not surprise me to see some administrative rulings come out of the agency soon on specific cases where people have written in with questions. They did that after they issued their 2013 guidance. Uh, there was a number of rulings that came out in a couple years after that that were pretty helpful in clarifying the agency's thinking, uh, so it would not surprise me to see something similar uh, after this guidance uh, over the next year or so. 
So in today's moment in salaciousness, the SEC brought another uh, uh, ICO complaint, this time against a company called Fantasy Coin. Uh, the coin was interesting. The complaint was not, perhaps. Yes. Case like this reminds me uh, how easy it is to commit a fraud, right? So here, our young entrepreneur imagined a way to mix crypto and adult entertainment, uh, a combination that allowed him to raise uh, $63,000. He actually claimed to have raised millions, but it took the the New York Post to discover that those claims were were fraudulent. This uh, particular case had all of the time-proven techniques uh, that we've come to know and love. You had a pre-sale, and then you have a public sale at higher prices. You have um, lies about uh, prior statements. You have a, a bogus white paper. Again, these are all the allegations, I should be clear. You have a, alleged to be a fictitious management team, just they're not people who are not who they are. Um, misrepresentations about your past experience, and then perhaps most um, amusing sort of incorrect statements of um, misrepresenting statements of interest um, from over 100 top quality performers uh, as a way to help sell the sell the investment. This would have been clearly a fun project for some SEC intern over the summer to put this one together. To have had to validate those claims, perhaps? Yes. I just mean so. just putting, putting this complaint together was probably a lot of fun. Right, right. Um, and then finally, uh, on the SEC front, uh, the SEC released a, a settlement order uh, in August in with respect to a company called Simply Vital Health, uh, which had conducted a pre-sale and uh, based on uh, some procedural irregularities um, in that pre-sale, went ahead and voluntarily returned funds to its contributors. Um, Steptoe was uh, happy to uh, represent Simply Vital Health as its counsel in that case. And that case has, uh, has been seen in the community as representing uh, uh, a proposition, and we think it's probably right, uh, in terms of the SEC's willingness to work with companies that themselves are willing to voluntarily remediate errors in this space. So with that, let me say thank you to Gary Goldschull, to Will Turner, and to Evan Abrams for joining me. This has been episode 279 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Don't forget, send us your guest suggestions and other feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow Stuart Baker on Twitter, at Stuart Baker. Uh, for updates on stories uh, we may cover each week. Uh, and please, please, please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.